Welcome back to the Millennial Pastor Podcast. And today I'm talking to Pastor Caitlin Kleppinger. And well, first of all, welcome Caitlin to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Really excited to have you. And I think I need to start off by saying first that you are actually Gen Z. Yes. Not not millennial. That's really important. Okay. And I'm excited because you're our very first Gen Z interview that I think we've ever done on the show so that's exciting yeah I'm excited about that so um do you want to quickly tell us what Gen Z means or no <laughs> um I don't totally know what that means to be honest but I am 22 years old so I was born right at the end of 1999 right that's that is actually good enough that helps us like it's the up-and-coming generation so if you are an adult right now with kids they're probably going to be a gen z well i shouldn't say an adult a a person with kids in college or school age would they would be the gen z coming up so you are the top of that generation so i'm excited to hear from you and um i think our listeners will be really interested in hearing your voice so um also, I think it's important that we talk about how we know each other. Yes. Uh, we go to school together, I guess, is a way to say it. Yeah, we are classmates. In this strange online um, world that we live in, we are both students in the Master's of Arts program of Church and Community at Trevecca. And I am about to finish, and you joined the program this year. Technically, yes. right? Yeah. I started in the fall. So this is my second semester. Okay. Yeah. And then I am going to be graduating in technically May. That's a long story. But anyway, um, I'm excited about that. And so it's been really fun to get to know each other through this program. And um, anyway, do you want to say anything about our program? Um, I really enjoy it. Um, we've had some pretty challenging classes, um, but they've all been super transformative. Um, and I've really enjoyed just like our class dynamic. It's been really fun to get to know everyone while also learning and practicing our learning simultaneously. So it's been really cool. Yeah, me too. It's been super transformative and um, I cannot wait to start putting into practice what I have learned the last two years. So, well, cool. Well, Caitlin, I would love to hear about um, you. Tell us where you grew up and what your upbringing was like and maybe your family origin. Yeah. So I was born and raised in New Hampshire. Um, My Mother is currently a pastor, but that's a very recent transition for her. Um, Beyond that, both of her parents are pastors and her sister is a pastor, all in the Nazarene church. So 
I think I am like sixth generation Nazarene, which is crazy. Um, so that's definitely been a strong influence in my life. Um, we grew up always going to church, um, partially because my mom was a pastor's kid. So that was part of her childhood. Um, we attended the same church for my whole life until we moved this past summer to Ohio, where my mom is currently the campus pastor at a church near Columbus. Um, shortly after moving to Ohio, I felt like I was being called somewhere else. Um, so I'm currently in Nashville, Tennessee at a Nazarene church. <laughs> um, so I've had a lot of pastoral influence just in my family even, um, which has been a huge part of my life. So, Yeah. So, um, and we just said that you're part of the master's program at Trebekah, but you also recently graduated with your undergrad from Trebekah yes. as well. Yeah. And I graduated in this past May. So almost a year ago, which is crazy. Um, and my degree is in worship and church ministry. So talk to me a little bit before we go into your call about the uniqueness of having female pastors around you. I mean, I'm assuming you also had male pastors, um, but what, what was that like? There's a lot of um, women that I know in of the millennial generation who really didn't get a lot of examples in their life, didn't see it very much. And so like, since you have mm -hmm. female pastors in your family and all around you, talk to me a little bit about how what that looked like to you? Did you just take that for granted? Did you know it was unique? Um, what was that like? I think I didn't really recognize how unique it was until I was older, probably like high school. Um, as a child, looking back, I'm noticing that the female pastors that I knew weren't necessarily in like lead pastor roles. Um, so our music minister back in the day <laughs> um, was a female. And then my grandmother was a female, but my grandfather is the lead pastor of their church. As I grew up, um, my aunt started her ordination path and she's currently a lead pastor, but that is a fairly recent thing. And then also my mom is currently a lead pastor, started as a worship pastor, which is interesting to think about. Um, so I would say even the influence that female pastors have had in my life has changed throughout even my small lifetime, um, starting as almost supporting roles, it feels like, moving into like actual leadership positions that have more of an influence in a congregation's life. Do you, um, do you ever remember asking like, why are you not the lead pastor? Or did you just assume that their role was to be support? And did you ever witness your family or other women say they wish they could be in a lead and 
there wasn't space or was that not a conversation? That wasn't really a conversation and not something that I questioned. I didn't necessarily think it was wrong because of how young I was. Like I didn't really know what was happening around me. So a lot of what I'm saying is reflective versus um, like a firsthand experience kind of thing. So for sure. And I'm not asking you to tell your mom or your aunt's story, but yeah, yeah. I was curious what the conversations sometime around the table were. <laughs> yeah. I never really questioned it. Like it was just part of my life. Um, and I always felt really supported by the women in my family, specifically as I started to figure out what my life was going to look like. Good. Well, so then let's move into your calling. It, this sounds like it's family business. So um, I know that <laughs> there's, um, there's some ministers who go into the family business, right? Because that's what's expected or they don't know what else to do. I know you, so I'm pretty sure that's not your story. Um, <laughs> but I would love to hear um, maybe your call. Maybe you don't have a specific story, but why you ultimately chose that and went into school um, for that and are following that path now. Yeah, so that question and its answer are multi-layered. Um, I was the kid who wanted to be everything under the sun when they grew up. Um, everything except a pastor, because that was my family. And I didn't want to be like my family. I wanted to be different and unique. Um, so that's part of that. The next part is my family is very, very musically inclined. So music has been part of my life since day one. We would listen to Kirk Franklin, Toby Mac, DC Talk in the car when I was a baby. <laughs> and um, CCM continued to be part of my life um, growing up. You're more, you're more millennial than you think then. <laughs> I guess so. I have a lot of millennial influences. <laughs> um, so... Also, my, both of my parents helped lead worship at my church. My dad would play the drums and my mom would sing and sometimes play piano. And then as she discerned her call, that became more of her official role was to be the worship pastor. So she grew into that position um, as the church grew to allow that to happen. And so that's why music is, has such an impact on my life, because it was my life mm -hmm. from Sunday to Sunday, basically. Um, growing up in the church, there were always people loving me, supporting me, encouraging me. And I knew that when I became an adult, that's not a culture that I want to leave. So I didn't necessarily see myself as a pastor, but I knew that I wanted to stay in the church sphere because of the relationships mm -hmm. and support that I had gained um, through my time as a child in church. So other than your mom and your other family members, um, were you able to witness any other women leaders in the inside the church my only mentor growing up outside of my family 
was my youth pastor and he was intentionally supportive of those who were feeling maybe a call to ministry. He set like a group specifically for those kids and he would help us through the discernment process, but also just support us and answer questions or we in our small group would have times where we would just cry together. So having that support was really influential. And I think part of that even influenced my call because um, I wanted to be that for people. Yes, yeah, so my you a large group of youth in your youth group that felt called. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Um, what do you think encouraged that? I remember coming back from Nazarene Youth Conference in 2015 and talking with my friends and quite a few of us were feeling like something changed there, which I think is probably where I started to actually seriously consider becoming a pastor because that's kind of what I was sensing. Um, specifically a worship leader, at least because of my music influence in my life and the passion that I had for that, along with the passion I had for the church, worship leading was becoming a new ish thing. So it didn't seem totally unreasonable for me to start thinking about doing that because it combined two of my passions and loves and relationships um, as well as music. So coming back from that, my friends and I were all sensing something changed, like I said. And at that point, we did not have a youth pastor. So that was very difficult. But my mom was very involved in worship, uh, in the youth ministry because I was telling her about how much it sucked. <laughs> So she came in and was trying to be supportive. And then shortly after that is when our youth pastor came in and she must have told him or it must have just been a passion of his to support us in that way. So he, I don't think he actually sought us out. I think we sought him out for that um, because we didn't know what to do. And we didn't necessarily feel comfortable going to the lead pastor with it. We felt a lot more relationally connected and felt a lot more trust with the youth pastor because we could tell that he cared about us and he loved us and was very intentional with our time together in youth group. So he was a very influential part in discerning my call as well as the calls of my friends who are currently still in school pursuing ministry. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so I was going to say that's super anecdotal of me, but I was curious how many of you actually went into ministry because of that. So there's me (laughs) (laughs) and I want to say about at least five others. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Not expecting that answer. <clears throat> oh, you just blew my mind. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So mentoring is really important. Uh, wow. Yes. 
Um, also anecdotal, uh, I won't include this in the recording, but I feel like your mom said at one point she was also called the NYC. Yeah. Which is pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. I won't say that I was at the same NYC as your mom, but I was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, that's so cool. Okay. So tell me, talk about, I would love to hear about your um, experience places. You don't have to list exact places where you've served, but um, maybe the roles that you have um, had and um, tell us about where you're serving now and what you're doing. Yeah. So I grew up in New Hampshire, like I said, and was pretty much on the worship team since I was born, (laughs) just because I was there every week with my parents. I started off by playing a piano prelude before the service because I was taking piano lessons. And the music minister at the time um, asked me to do that randomly. And I was like, sure, I guess I'm not great, but I'll do it. Um, I messed up every time and would beat myself up over it, but she was always so gracious and she was like, you did amazing. Thank you so much for your ministry. And I was like, what? I'm 12. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) On the New England district where I grew up, we have this thing called Festival of Life, which I'm pretty sure every region has something like that, but it's called something different in every place. Um, so one year my youth group decided to put together a band and I was part of it and kind of in charge, which I don't know how that happened. Um, But my mom was helping, but it really felt like I was in charge. It might've just been some kind of weird complex that I was having as a 13 year old, but um, so that's kind of really when my worship leading as I know it started. And from that, I was asked to play the piano with the adult worship team, which I felt super cool about. Um, So I would play with them every once in a while, just as like a supporting instrumentalist. I wasn't leading, leading. Mm -hmm. Um, And Then as I started getting more practice at that, I started to um, do it more often. And then I think it was my mom, as she was kind of becoming the worship pastor at the church, she asked if I'd be interested in leading and creating a service order. And that seemed pretty intimidating at first, Um, but she was like, I'll help you. Like, it'll be okay. We can do it together but I just was wondering if that's something you'd be interested in. And I was like, I mean, if you're helping me, sure. Like, that's fine. That sounds fun. Um, so I did that oh, for a long time, actually. Um, three years in high school, I think. And I then know. every once in a while when I was like back from break um, at Trebekah, So it really became super natural to me because I had a lot of experience. Um, And then while I was at school, um, 
I found a really small church, which I loved. And I basically got roped in the second week that I was there, um, which was fine because that's what I wanted to do. Right. I wanted to be part of it. And that's why I found a small church was because I wanted to be engaged in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, that church had some moments of stress for me just because there wasn't a lot of planning or communication. Um, and I didn't really know how much I valued that until it wasn't there. So mm-hmm. that helped me grow in that area. Um, I wasn't planning the services there as much, which was fine with me, um, but I was playing the piano and singing pretty much every week. And then also when I went home for break, like I said, there would be some weeks where I'd have off, some weeks where I'd support instrumentally, and some weeks where I would plan the service, which was honestly really fun. (laughs) Um, And then I graduated from college, and my family moved and my mom became the campus pastor. Um, At that point, I wasn't totally sure anymore what my calling looked like. I knew I was being called to pastoral ministry, but a lot of opportunities were being presented in my mind. Um, And a lot of people had to keep reminding me, like, you don't have to be a worship pastor your entire life. Mm -hmm. Like, this is not you planning out until you die. This is you just saying yes to the next thing that God is calling you to. And that reframing really helped me be confident, one, in my abilities, but also, like, in the calling that I was sensing. Um, So over the summer, I was really slow to integrate into my mom's church um, because I did not want to just come in and take over. I wanted to get to know the congregation before I even asked if I could help with the worship team. Mm -hmm. And then in August, the worship leader came up to me and she was saying, she asked if I'd be willing to plan a service sometime. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's what I went to school for and I have plenty of experience, so I'd love to. And then she got sick. (laughs) So that was me (laughs) that week. (laughs) Um, And she must have watched the live stream or something because when she came back the next week after she was feeling better, she had a meeting with my mom and she told her that she really needed some time off because she hadn't had a week off in years. Years, had not had a week off from leading worship. And I said, that's really terrible. Please go get some rest. Mm -hmm. I got this. She said, oh yeah, I know you've got this. That's the only reason why I feel comfortable taking time off. So it was just me and my dad. for a few months um and then I met um my current pastor we reconnected in November and by January I was ready to move to Nashville um 
So I moved in the middle of February and was so ready to just be somewhere new, somewhere that felt like home. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was so excited to be part of this church. And then actually, so today is April 7th, the day that we're recording this. A month yesterday was my first day. And I have loved every second of it. Um, Like I said, it's a small church, which small churches really have my heart because they feel it's a lot more easy to get connected in Mm. intentional and really meaningful ways. Um, And I've already made some of those relationships. Um, And I've just been encouraged by so many people already in the congregation just saying, we're so thankful that you're here Mm. and we can really tell that like God is doing something in your life in this ministry. And that has just been so affirming. Mm. Um, So I'm at Inglewood Church of the Nazarene in East Nashville. Um, Like I said, I've been here a month and a day now and loving every second. That's so awesome. So listeners, if you're in Nashville and you need a church. <laughs> yeah, but come visit. <laughs> That's so great. And as you were telling that story, I'm just thinking about how um, everything from your lead pastor having faith in you to take that on, um, from your congregants coming and encouraging you to do that, from the people wanting to form relationships, everything about that says um, welcome and, Mm -hmm. and just the fact that they love their pastor as well. Um, yes. It's so encouraging. We don't see that in every congregation. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And that helps us worship as a family too, when we're together. Yes, it does. Caitlin, you're probably way too young to remember worship wars in the church. Do you remember any of that? no I do not (laughs) it's probably good that you don't Uh, (laughs) I don't I won't ask a lot about that but I'm wondering did you see the repercussions of it in your church at all over the years like did you hear about it at all did you um was there still signs of it in your local church or not really are these just stories that you think old people talk about (laughs) no I think it's still relevant um for sure I was probably I, a little bit younger than you when it started. So like that mm, is just blows my mind that it's still going on. It's still happening. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, both of my parents were helping lead worship even before my mom became the worship pastor a few years ago. So I was definitely the eavesdropper kid. So <laughs> I would listen to all their conversations after church and after practice about the tea and stuff like that. Um, I think one of the biggest conversations that I remember was about the drums. Mm-hmm. My, that's my dad's like main instrument and that is how he worships um, during service. So he can be loud, which I think is fine, but I remember there was one specific person who would sit near the front and sit near the drums and then after service complain that they were too loud. Mm. So 
we eventually got a cage for them so that it would help the sound a little bit. And that would also allow the drum sound to come through the speakers a little bit more instead of just like blaring um, from the platform. That's the biggest conversation that I remember. And it's probably because it felt a little bit personal because that's my dad. Right. And I think that especially is still a conversation that churches are having. Mm -hmm. um, I personally don't believe that any instrument is banned from being worshipful because worship is a posture and not just singing. So that was a touchy subject growing up. And I think that conversation continues with talks about choir ministry and can we still use hymns even though our theology has changed to where some of these hymns are now a little bit problematic and iffy is it worth it to keep them and maybe change the lyrics or do we get rid of them because they're not good anymore do we write new ones we're Let's still figuring about, all of that out we'll talk about that a little bit then um I was going to talk about that later, but let's let's go ahead and dive into that a little bit. When you say our theology has changed, what do you mean by that? I think I mean that the language that we use to talk about our theology has changed so that it is less Jesus, take me away from this earth because it's bad. And it's more become Jesus fill this earth because we know that it's supposed to be good. So instead of escapism or a super focused practice of salvation mm -hmm. and conversion, it's more holistic to include creation care and reconciliation instead of you just need Jesus and everything will be fine. That's what I think. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, this is a question that I randomly popped into my head, but I, I've really been thinking about this lately. Um, would a, I don't even know if this is possible, would a new hymnal for the Church of the Nazarene be worth printing and, okay, but I know we're in a digital world, but would it be worth redoing a hymnal for the upcoming generation so that we could get back on track theologically or are hymns just like a thing of the past? Would it be worth our time and effort to actually be patient and selective and think about church history and um, try to get ourselves back on track or would that just be like another whole fight in the church um, and like I'll tell you where I'm coming from with this I so I live in Florida and I attend a lot of funerals for older church people and so because of that I hear a lot of old hymns from my childhood mm -hmm. that are just like I understand why they want them at their funeral they're sentimental to them and when right. they hear them, they think of church, but the theology is all wrong. Yeah. And as I think about more and more people are only stepping in 
the church now for funerals, like younger people, Mm -hmm. I think we don't want to only hear these lyrics. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective on that for sure. I personally love hymns. I love that they have a place in our tradition because I don't think we should totally get rid of tradition because we are part of a story. And so our tradition is part of our story, even if it's a little messed up sometimes. So I personally think that it would be worth it to rewrite some of the hymns, Mm -hmm. either completely or just change specific lyrics. But I think in order for that to be accepted, we have to have more conversations about how hymns are perceived by the younger generation because we are aware of all these messed up things Mm -hmm. and at least from conversations that I've had the messed up things have become the focus so let's just trash hymns because they suck right but I think if we reworked them they could be beneficial but we'd have to have those conversations that are really difficult to have Because you have to explain what's going on and explain that hymns aren't bad. It's just that our theology has changed, which means you have to explain the changes in theology and just have a lot of those really nitty gritty conversations. Yeah. But I really think that it could be beneficial. So I know people who um, hold the view that they love modern worship songs and um they love their christian radio right and part of that is just because it's it it's an identity i think is they can on, they can listen to it they worship through it like all week long so it's familiar they know the words um and i think that's probably how the older generation felt about their hymns right it was familiar it was comfortable they listened to it at home during the week and so um could you give me your opinion I guess um talk a little bit about why um modern songs are not our only go-to and why we should possibly be selective about them as well yes um first I would just like to say that plenty of our contemporary Christian worship songs are hymns because a hymn is simply a song of praise. (laughs) So just to make that distinction really quick, I think sometimes the word hymn can be confusing because we think it's just old songs, Mm -hmm. but it's a specific type of song that is a hymn. Um, And about the selectivism that I think we should have, there is, in my opinion, an alarming number of quote-unquote worship songs that never mention God at all. Mm -hmm. Those are not songs of praise anymore, even if they are 
intended towards God. If we don't say it's about God, mm-hmm. it could be about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, Why would that be important? Like if you were talking to somebody who was just, you know, loves to sing at their church and love, like, why it why would that be important? Like, obviously we want to talk about God, but if they say, well, it's implied, why would that be an issue? I think that the words that we say have impact, but also the words that we don't say, the things that we intentionally leave out can have a negative implication for how someone is shaping their theology. Beyond that, we always want to be cognizant of the fact that each person in the congregation is at a different place in their story, in their relationship with God. There might be someone who is new and we might not know or recognize that. So we want to retell the story every time that we're together because we are an embodied and storied people. So that's part of our worship is remembering who we are and reminding ourselves that we are God's people in the world, not somebody's people who's loving and good. Mm. Um, That's so good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, a lot of times like you might hear, I mean, I think people are joking, but it's half true that like worship songs tend to be Jesus is my boyfriend songs. Have you heard that? Also an important aspect of worship is just remembering that is it, it is a response to what God has already done. So God has already met us when we come into the worship space. So everything that we do is in response to God for the things that God has done. So if we don't talk about who we're responding to, it can become confusing, I think. You know, this just, this came really clear to me recently um, when um, I had a, um, a newer, like a brand new Christian into my congregation and we were seeing a really the popular song that is about you know it has the line all my life you've been faithful all my life you you know this one right goodness of god yes thank you and i started thinking she can't relate to this at all (laughs) like maybe god hasn't been faithful to her Mm. and maybe all her life like she didn't have a clue who god was um, and this, these are just things I was thinking in my head. I don't know if she was thinking it, Yeah. but I thought what a beautiful song for someone who has spent their life with God, but also what a, what a way to exclude people who mm-hmm. have not felt that way. So going back to the way that we should select worship songs for a second, I think that there are a lot of songs that come from a place of privilege, whether that's a privilege of having a long relationship with God already, the privilege of our socioeconomic status, 
recently um, we had a woman just randomly come into our service who we later found out is experiencing homelessness. And that Sunday, I was all of a sudden like, oh no, all of these songs are talking about God's provision Mm. in our lives, which is not a bad thing to sing about. Mm -hmm. When you have someone who may not experience that provision in the same way, the whole lens shifts and we have to find a way to make sure that they're also included in these stories of God's faithfulness in a way that isn't attached to resources necessarily. God can be faithful in numerous other ways, mm. but a lot of our songs imply that God's faithfulness is through resources. And again, I don't necessarily think that's incorrect. But when we only sing songs about the ways that God has provided for us in that way, not only do we exclude people from the story, we also create a really narrow view of who God is. And in a way, our language puts limits on God's grace, God's faithfulness, God's love, and literally anything about God. So I think there's a lot of tension in service planning because we have to remind people of the story of God, remind people that Jesus has died and resurrected. So there's new life and hope for new creation. But at the same time, the reality of our world is so difficult, which is why I think this season of Lent that we are in currently as we're recording this is super important because we are living in the tension between death and life, between grief and joy, because that's our reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that as you're sharing about songs that have to do with resources, and I'm thinking about who's writing our modern songs right now. Yep or where we're getting those mostly from. Mm-hmm. And the um, prosperity gospel that they're coming from, perhaps that's why we're seeing those types of lyrics be popular. I don't know. Yeah. Not, but um, I think that speaks to that place of privilege you're talking about. If we're getting songs from mainly upper class white people then Mm -hmm. that's where um that's where those lyrics are gonna fall now we don't want to like get rid of all of that but like you said it's important to include voices from all kinds of places Mm -hmm. and all kinds of traditions Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah yeah so let's talk about service planning for a second. Um, in a perfect world, you probably would want to know the whoever's preaching that the preacher's sermon or theme yep. day so that you could also plan um, 
as a last minute preacher, I, <laughs> I <laughs> am a little sympathetic, but I also um, love when the service comes together like that. Mm-hmm. You want everybody to feel if you're talking about grace, I picked a really easy one there. Um, you want that theme strung all through everything that you're doing from right. worship to your blessing at the end. You want that theme all the way mm-hmm. through. Um, how, maybe talk a little bit about um, why that's important. How to do that if people haven't even thought about doing that before or want to do that, but don't know how. And um, maybe how, how you've done it or wish you could do it (laughs) yeah I totally agree that having a theme for the service can be really influential because it helps us all focus on the same thing um so not only am I personally focused on God's grace throughout the service but all of us together as one body are focused on God's grace I think having that thread throughout the service gets us all on the same page, at least for the most part, since we just talked about privilege. It's a little bit complex in that regard. So my lead pastor preaches from the lectionary. So I have usually a general idea of where she's headed. So during our staff meeting, we all plan the service together. Um, At least the general flow of the service. I think liturgy is super important and it's, a way to tell stories while telling the whole story, while living the story. There's so many stories, so many layers. So I have a flow that I like to follow because of the way our service is laid out. So I usually try to have the first song be either a retelling of the whole story of God. So one of my favorites is King of Kings because it talks about Christ's birth, Christ's death, resurrection, but also what the church is supposed to be. Um, If one of those doesn't work, I usually try to have the first song be about God. If anything, maybe some we language, but not I, if I can avoid that, because it is a congregational together experience. And that's usually a practice I try to follow as much as I can throughout the whole service because we're worshiping together, not just me and then you also worshiping. Yeah. Um, so for the second song, it usually aligns more with the thread. Um, and I have a practice of trying to have one hymn at least, one more traditional song. And after the sermon, um, we sing a song and then we take communion after that. So that song might be a response to the sermon that was just spoken. So it might be a song that offers ourselves to God, or it might be a song about the table and communion. It could be a song of invitation to the table. There's a lot of options there, which is really fun, I think. So that's kind of the general flow that I try to do during the service. Start with God, maybe talk about us, 
prepare our hearts for the receiving of the word and then either a response to that or an invitation to the table. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the plan that I tend to follow every week if I can. Mm -hmm. So songs with like the I in it, do you just throw them out? Do you tend to change the lyric a little bit? Um, what happens when someone says, why don't we ever sing this song? <laughs> so with the I language, I think it has a place. For example, songs of confession can have I language because mm -hmm. this is my confession to God. But there's also an understanding that like all of us are confessing together. But because I'm in a small church that doesn't live stream, this might be slightly illegal, but <laughs> I change the eyes to we's or us mm -hmm. um, just to make it a congregational song. And if that can't really be changed and it doesn't really flow well I'll sometimes be okay with it if the lyrics are like really really good and really follow either the thread or the flow that I'm trying to have for the service. Have you noticed um, a different response when you plan services around a thread versus when maybe songs are just sung Maybe not services you've led necessarily, but do you see a difference? I do. Um, when songs are just chosen, it feels very jumpy. Um, and at least I can tell when there seems to be a lack of intentionality, which might not be the case. It might just be the week that was had or something it might just be the person's style but I personally really value the thread and the flow and the liturgy and I think that that really has an impact even though my intentions aren't said out loud people can feel what's happening which is why I think music is so powerful um part of the reason at least so short answer, yes. I really can tell the difference when the service flows in a particular way. And I think people who even don't have a worship quote unquote background mm -hmm. also can like sense kind of the movement that's happening. And I think that that's one really cool way that the spirit actually moves in our services. Talk to the person who says, wow, this is a brand new thing for me. Like I, I just was choosing songs because I love them and I love to sing them and, um, and I want to do what you're saying, but I don't know where to start it. Are there good resources for like, if my thread is, I'll just go back to grace. Cause that's the easy one. Are you said King of Kings? Like how, how do I easily find songs about that without just having to rack my brain for which song talks about this? Yes. So something that I actually recently found that I love is called Word to Worship. It's a website. 
and you can type in a word or phrase and it'll pull up a bunch of different songs that contain the same theme. You also can type in scripture passages and mm. it'll find songs that relate to the scripture. There's also a place where you can just find the liturgical set or whatever you call it for the week, click on that and it'll pull up a bunch of songs that relate to all the scriptures. Mm -hmm. um, that is like my new favorite thing. I think that's so cool and something that I wish I'd found a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. um, also, Song Select, the CCLI website has a section with themes in it. So you can click on a theme. That's not something that you can search in that one. They have themes like set out for you to look through and it'll again, pull up songs that relate to the theme. So I think both of those are really good resources and I use them every week. So I really like them. So um, what would you say, I'm assuming you have a worship team or band or mm -hmm. in your group. What do you say to the person who um, doesn't maybe from a smaller church doesn't have like all the talent they wish they had or the time to get your group together to rehearse or whatever. And so like we sing these same 10 songs because this is what we sound good as, or these are the songs my people know. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything that we can say to them that would encourage them or ways that they could just slightly start shifting to get to a point where they could start implementing some of this? Um, yeah. Because not everybody can just go up and start singing brand new songs each week or whatever. Yeah. So I try to only introduce one new song at a time. And if I do that, we're going to do it a couple times in a row. <laughs> um, or maybe not sequentially, but we're going to do it often enough so that you'll get to know it. Mm -hmm. um, that's a practice that I try to have because I remember times where like a new song is thrown in and I'm just lost and confused and don't know what's happening. So it just completely, for me, disrupts my worship posture because I don't feel connected anymore. So I think new songs are good, but I also think that songs that you already know are even more important. I also try to find songs that really resonate with the story of the congregation. So you can ask people what their favorite hymns are, favorite worship songs. You don't have to do all of them, mm -hmm. um, but just find songs that really have either helped people through difficult times or really resonate with them or is a way for them to remember who God is. Um, I think that's a really cool way that again like all of our stories just interconnect in that way mm -hmm. I personally really prioritize a practice time so we do practice during the week and oh like warm up on Sunday morning before service so that way we can go over everything all together once and if we need to go over it again on Sunday 
Um, people in general, I think just because of our culture, don't really see practice as worship, but it is. Mm-hmm. Um, our time together is worship, and you have to frame it that way mm-hmm. intentionally in order for that to actually take place. Um, but not only that, having a practice prepares us to help lead the congregation. It helps us to feel comfortable with these songs that we have, um, comfortable playing together. Um, That way everyone's on the same page Mm -hmm. and we can focus on worshiping together Sunday morning rather than being like, "Ah, I don't remember Mm -hmm. how this song goes or something like that. If that's not something you can do, I would encourage you to encourage your team to practice on their own time or at least become familiar with the songs enough so that they can play to the best of their abilities while also having space in themselves for their own worship. What would you say to the very small church uh, worship leader who it's just them? And maybe they sing, but don't play an instrument. So now we have like possibly YouTube video or something like in that going on. Um, what would your advice be? Um, first, that's completely okay and legitimate. Whatever you have to do is still important and vital for the life of your congregation. Even if you feel like you could be doing more it's okay. We've all been there. Um, when a previous church I've been at, it was just me playing the piano and singing every week, which I'm comfortable with most of the time. Um, but not everyone is like that and that's okay. You can use YouTube videos, whatever you need to do. What I'm getting at is like, I think what happens is it's, it's kind of like how pastors compare numbers, right? Or compare what we offer in our programs and stuff like that. And so I think when you go to a larger church that has more talent or whatever they have, right? Um, we see ourselves as inadequate. And so um, I, I want... Um, I, I want to encourage the person who is all by themselves to see this time as a time of formation and worship and not a time to perform if that makes sense and so how do we how do we get there especially when we feel kind of judged or alone or even almost embarrassed that oh it's just me kind of thing if if that makes sense worship is really a posture and a way of life rather than just singing or just leading. So I think that if you have limited resources, which my church does (laughs) right now, um, there are still ways that you can intentionally posture yourself so that it still is worship, even if you feel judged by the presentation of it or whatever the things that you want to prioritize are first your own worship posture, because that's really where everything's going to come out of. 
if you are trying to perform, that's how it will come across. And if you're trying to just get by, that also will come across. But if you're actually trying to worship, even as you mess up, even as you have technical difficulties, which we have almost every week, your posture of worship will bleed out into the congregation and people will hopefully stop being so worried about the things going on around them. Um, there are also ways that you can verbally help your congregation prepare their own posture of worship. That can also be done through the liturgy, through the order of service. For example, we give a brief welcome. We light a Christ candle to remind the congregation that even though there's a lot going on in our lives and in the world, Christ is still present and Christ is present as we gather. And then after that, we read scripture, starting off with the word of the Lord. <laughs> that in itself is already like, this is what we're here to do. Now let's sing together as the body of Christ. I think there are plenty of ways to not create a worshipful atmosphere because that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to lead the congregation into a posture of worship. And there are plenty of ways to do that even without instrumental resources, technological resources, volunteers. Mm -hmm. To be completely honest, a lot of those things can get in the way of a worshipful posture. Mm -hmm. Because when we focus on those things, it does become a performance, whether we intend it to or not. Yeah, I, I think the posture is super helpful um, to somebody who might be struggling with that. And, and it's, there's also that um, imposter syndrome that we might mm -hmm. feel as we're like, well, what am I trying to do? Like, what am I trying to prove? Yep. And then that we kind of slip into that. I need to hype them up or I need to get them to a place. And that's not yeah. our job. Like you mentioned, like that's the Holy spirit presence that does that. Um, so yeah, I think the the idea of the posture that you're talking about is just really, really helpful. Um, I was part of a church that their standard was three songs, the morning announcements, a prayer, another song, and then the sermon and then dismissal every single week. The service was very um, predictive. Everybody knew what was going to happen. And because of that, it was super dry and boring. I'm not going to lie. It was just, I hate to say dead, but dead. Um, so going back to how you were talking about planning the worship service and how important that is, um, let's talk about why worship is not just music and songs that worship includes every part of what we're doing, um, during our worship gathering time, whether that's Sunday morning or, or another time of the week. As I mentioned before, um, worship is a posture of response to what God has done already, what God is doing, and what God will continue to do. So basically just a response to who God is. Um, and if we're being totally honest, worship should really just be 
the way that we live our lives in every moment of every day as a response to who God is. Um, not just for us, but like who God is, period. <laughs> um, so I think that understanding shifts the way that we should view a worship service because the service as a whole is a response. It's not something that we create. It's not something that we do first and then God responds. God has already been moving. So we come, we gather and we respond and then God brings a word and we respond. And then God sends us and we respond. Um, so there's this sending and giving and already being present, but all of it should be responded to by us. It's not something that we start. Um, so even though we might begin our worship service with a welcome, that's not the first thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, God is already there. And our welcome is into what God is already doing. Um, so that helps for me to reframe every part of the service, whether it's prayer or scripture reading or announcements. Um, because all of it is almost like an acceptance of an invitation from God to join what's already happening. So it's important for us to view the worship gathering time as just an extension of our lives rather than this is the time we go get filled up by God. It's not just another way for me to worship. Mm -hmm. It's, it is really intentional because it's a gathered worship it's a together communal worship which doesn't happen any other time throughout the week except when we meet together mm -hmm. um which is why also I think communion is really important in our services because it helps us receive God's grace but also it makes in a really strange way it makes us the body of Christ together mm -hmm. So, Caitlin, in closing, I like to end with two questions. And um, the first is, what is your greatest concern for today's church? One thing that I have noticed is that there sometimes is a disconnect between our language and the way that we talk about our theology versus the way that we practice it and live it out. I think that is a general struggle for Christians, just in like, in general, everyone seems to struggle with actually living out the calling that Jesus has presented to us. Um, but I think, as we mentioned before about um, the hymnal, our theology, and its language is starting to shift a little bit. And that is scary because there will be things that we'll have to leave behind in order to more faithfully live into this new theological language. Um, but that's something that we have to be willing to do because if 
we don't take the jump, <laughs> then people will be left behind um, and marginalized, like we talk about with privilege in our services. Um, and in all honesty, if we don't at least try, because that's really what it's about. We just have to try <laughs> to practice what God is calling us to do. Um, and we aren't really being obedient to God's word or God's calling on our lives as the general church or um, these shifts also need to happen in the practices of our local congregations. And not that our Christian walk is about relevancy, mm -hmm. but the church is becoming more irrelevant because our language and our practice don't match up. Um, and for most people, that's a concern because if you're not living the way that you talk, something is not right and not necessarily trustworthy. Um, our faith is practiced through relationships, which is why I think that trust and the matching of our language and our practice is so important. Um, and those relationships will be lost if we don't try to be faithful to our faithful God. Yeah. Very well said. So then what gives you the most hope for the church in the future? I have seen this start happening already in small ways, um, at least in my local congregation, which is so encouraging. Um, it always takes more work to change an entire denomination because that's a whole huge group of people. <laughs> Um, but there are ways that we can begin to practice the change and practice this new language in our lives before necessarily it becomes part of our denominations manual. Mm -hmm. Um, there are ways for us to be intentional, intentionally relational with our communities and engaged with them. And there are ways for us to really show that we care, even if it's not totally spelled out. Um, that gives me a lot of hope. And also conversations like these, um, which are happening everywhere. Conversations that aren't just talking about frustrations, which I think is important, but are trying to find ways to channel that frustration into action um, that's transformative for everyone and not just those of us who are frustrated. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for your time. And I just, I really appreciate you talking to me and um, I think you're beyond your years sometimes. So this was I, really fun <laughs> good i love being in class with you and i love getting to just chat with you about all of this so thanks for yeah. being on the podcast yeah thanks for having me
This has been the Millennial Pastor Podcast. This show is created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. It is edited by Caden Barksdale. Original music by Andrew Jones. And today's host is Amy McCroffsky. We thank you so much for listening. And we would ask that you would rate, review, subscribe, and share with friends. And until next time, stay tuned for the next Millennial Pastor Podcast.